This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, look, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted! Intercepted! The next the ball! Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, the game. Hi, everybody. Matt Bagley alongside Justin Hopkins. We, we get a lot of questions about this when we don't tape on our normal Monday. My answer was this. There was a lot of crap up in the air and, and a contract that had to be signed and a game that could have been canceled. And now we're here. It's Thursday. I think it's too late to cancel that game tomorrow. And a contract got signed. Mario Cristobal is going to stay at Oregon. Uh, Let's lead with that, my friend. I asked this question on the radio show last night. I'll toss it over to you. I think you're going to have a a field day with it. Three years in, did Oregon make the right decision extending Mario Cristobal? Yeah, I I mean, I don't don't think there's any question. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, anybody that doesn't like, you know, that doesn't like this deal or isn't a fan of Mario Cristobal is probably because they're a fan of another program in the Pac-12. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying that, you know, Mario Cristobal is the next Bear Bryant. I'm not, you know, I, I know there are some concerns maybe about, you know, things in game and some of the elements of, of, of coaching that maybe he hasn't quite mastered yet. But those are things that, you know, Mario Cristobal can learn. I think he'll continue to evolve. I think the hardest part for me is if you if you lost Mario Cristobal here this week at this point in time to, to Auburn, to whomever, you know, what does Oregon do next? I mean, I think it really, I'm not going to call it an implosion because that seems pretty severe, but it seems like it would put the, the school at a major setback. I think it's pretty clear if you're Oregon, if you're Rob Mullins, if you're Phil Knight, you've got the guy that you think can take you, you know, to the national title game. Does that mean it's next year, two years, three years? We don't really know, but it certainly seems like he's got the program trending in the right direction and not just, you know, coaching, if you will. It, it's recruiting. I know everybody wants to say, oh, you congratulations, you played it, you paid a a really good recruiter. Well, yeah, you know, you did pay a really good recruiter, but he also recruits coaches really well. And I think as, as Mario Cristobal continues to evolve, he'll he'll get more comfortable and allow his coordinators to do more. And he's obviously very smart about surrounding himself with also really smart coaches, uh, coordinators, assistant coaches. So, yeah, you know, to answer you, going to have a field day. This is the right move. There was no other move to be made here. I think Oregon losing this recruiting class that they had put together uh, prior to Wednesday would have would have been a massive blow to this program for the next couple of years. Not saying another coach couldn't have helped and, and wouldn't have steadied the ship to a degree, but it would have been a, a massive blow for a very young roster and somebody would have come in and had a little bit more work to do. Fortunately, we don't have to worry about that. No, no, I agree with you almost wholeheartedly, uh, especially when you say some people might knock this as just the ducks paying for a good recruiter. Personally, in college football, I think you need a good recruiter, right? Like, that should be your priority when you're looking for yeah. a coach. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at this point, uh, with college football and the way it's gone, that's about, you know, that's about 90% of the game right there anymore. I mean, it, uh, you can you can hide a lot of flaws of a coach, head coach or position coach, coordinator, with a lot of really good talent, okay? So, I, you know, I think if, if you're saying – and here's something that I haven't, I haven't said yet, and somebody actually said it to me this morning, and I thought it was awesome. Um, this year, this season – Oregon's three and two, not great, right? I mean, we were all expecting five and zero, oh, six and zero, oh, whatever. You know, we were expecting a better season. You had COVID, you had opt outs, you had all kinds of things that went on. I think, and I agree with this statement. You've basically just seen the floor of Oregon this year under Mario Cristobal. The yes. floor, yes. The floor is 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 a uh, you know six and four if you ex- if you expand that three and two season. More opt basically a season like this in a normal year would mean he basically lost his top five players to injury for the season in the first week of the before the season even began. That's what you just looked at here. Clearly, they weren't able to train the normal way, and and everybody was the same. It's not like you know Oregon, uh, you know, is an exception. So I'm not making an excuse, but all in all, you're looking at the floor of Mario Cristobal here, and sure, you don't want to be three and two, six and four, whatever, whatever, every, every year. That's not the goal. I understand that. But again, if that's the floor and he can continue to recruit and develop and probably never experience a year like this, I think you're competing for a conference championship probably every year, if not better. I agree. No, I, the, the only year that compares to me is his first full year where they get that win over the Huskies and everybody loses their minds. I remember doing a radio hit uh, on uh, Rip City up in Portland telling those guys Oregon's going to be in the playoff. And then they lose in Pullman and go on a tailspin. That was a pretty fluky year, though, because they had a lot of injuries and he, he still didn't have a full cupboard in terms of the, the recruits that he'd been able to bring in and in terms of his coaching staff. Now he has it. I think this is his floor. A, a, a good team, they're going to get a couple of losses. If that's your floor, maybe eight, nine wins at the least, that's worth it to me. Um, yeah. Well, and to your point as well, this next coming year, 2021 season, is really, really the first true year of a mostly Mario Cristobal team. Because up to this, he's had a lot of Mark Helfrich elements in there, which isn't a bad thing. Right. But you've had a lot of those guys. You just graduated that offensive line. Justin Herbert's gone. Brady Breeze is now gone. Lenore, you know, more than likely will be. You're basically losing almost all the ties of that Helfrich era this next and coming year. And it's not a bad thing. That leadership was great. That veteran presence was great. But you're about to see Mario Cristobal really put his stamp on this program. And we know one thing, he's definitely bringing talent to Eugene, so oh, yeah. you got to think that that floor just elevated a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, Kayvon Thibodeau, Justin Flo, Penny Sewell, uh, that's obvious. Um, how close did Auburn come to getting him to go to Auburn? You know, I think that's the million-dollar question. Obviously, you and I are not Auburn insiders. You know, we don't cover that program in the way that we cover, you know, you know me specifically for the Ducks, you for the West Coast, of course, with the, you know, with the Ducks as well. And, you know, know, did they offer? Was Mario their top guy? You know, what could they have offered more? 
you know, a lot of things enter my mind. They've got a lot of money because they've got really good TV contracts because they have, well, you know, a commissioner that actually does his job in the <laughs> SEC. Uh, different, different story, different time, of course. But, uh, you know, so you, you're, you're already stomached a $21 million buyout. You would have paid Oregon $8 million just to get Mario and then whatever your contract with him is and his assistance. It's a lot, a lot of money. So, uh, you know, were they serious? Was it agent talk? Was it smoke so that... You know, there was a little pressure on Oregon to do something sooner than later. I don't know. I don't pretend to know, but I do know this, okay? I, I'm pretty confident in Mario Cristobal's ability. I'm pretty confident that he is coveted, okay, by a lot of schools. A lot of schools have their eye on him, and everybody basically viewed him as one of the best deals in college football right now. So I say this. If it wasn't Auburn this year, and who knows, Michigan might still have an opening. We don't know. Uh, they could potentially make a move from Harbaugh there. If it wasn't Auburn or Michigan or whomever this year, it might have been Texas or Florida or whomever next year. You know what I mean? I'm, it wasn't like this was just going to go away, you know, this year. It's like, oh, it's Auburn, and if Auburn doesn't hire him, we don't have to worry about it from here. No, this was going to be a perennial problem every year until, you know, things got done. And I think uh, I think both sides got what they wanted here. You know, I know a lot of fans are belly aching about the the Cristobal numbers on his contract, the you know the the money, the buyout, and and there has to be give and take. I, I do think Mario Cristobal would have signed a, a bigger buyout, but with that comes a bigger salary. I mean, you can't just have your cake and eat it too. You know, say hey, here's a fair market deal, but by the way, we're going to strap you with a a, a twenty million dollar buyout for five years. That isn't fair to both sides. You know, that's not how deals work. So right. I, I think in the end, one of the biggest priorities to Mario Cristobal was taking care of his staff, expanding his staff, having that kind of money there to be able to do what he feels he needs to do to take this program to the next step. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of those numbers in there that weren't necessarily released in the initial contract numbers. On the surface, it says six years, twenty-seven million. But if you go and look closer, it's a, it's a lot closer to forty million dollars. You know, it's a very fair contract. I think it puts him around the second best paid coach in the conference. It's a really good deal. And as big of a fan of, of Mario Cristobal as I am, and the, and the way he leads Oregon, we still have a relatively small sample size of Mario Cristobal to date. Right. Love the recruiting. Love how he leads things. Love how he builds things. But. Rob Mullins hasn't become a really, really good AD just to throw it away on a on a terrible contract with Mario Cristobal. I think he was safe here. I think he was methodical. I think he made a fair offer. And at the end of the day, both both sides were able to come together and sign something they that they felt was mutually beneficial. I love it. I think it I think it came out great. It, I think I think it came out better than expected, really. My only issue is I think this is something that could have been done in the spring. And this could have all been avoided, but that's a, a different story. It's in the past. It's done. We're moving on. Mario Cristobal is here to stay, at least for a few more years. Yeah, and I think that hits on a point. I, I read comments every now and then of fans that, that can be critical of Rob Mullins, and I get it because I haven't loved every move he's made. I wish that he had found a way to kept Mike White with Oregon softball, for example. Um, you know, wish that, that – and I, I love Dana Altman – I really liked Ernie Kent and some of those teams that Ernie had built for the Ducks back in the day. Um, but with regards to football, the sport that your boosters are throwing the most money at, the sport that your fans are throwing the most money at, the sport that, that is going to bring in the most money year after year, I think Rob Mullins has done a good job not wasting that money. He's going to spend it 
on guys that he thinks will earn it. And and that's where Mario Cristobal comes into the equation. Already has a Pac-12 title under his belt, has gone out in recruiting and, and got you know, elite guys. Kayvon Thibodeau was a huge get a couple years ago. Uh, Justin Flo was a huge get last year. Ty Thompson is a a landmark move this year. And we'll get into to that and the rest of signing day a couple minutes from now. But um, I think Rob Mullins didn't want to spend this money in a pandemic year. But Considering what you said, if it wasn't going to be Auburn this year, it might have been Michigan, could have been Florida or Texas or somebody, USC for God knows who, we don't know, Um, down the line, Miami down the line, you never know, he had to do this. He had to extend Mario Cristobal. And and so I'm okay with it. Yeah, I I think you bring up another good point. I think you're entirely right this is probably the last thing uh rob mullins wanted to do in a in a pandemic year like this obviously revenues are down uh you know there are concerns about optics you know and and extending and spending this money when you've basically you know forced a lot of the staff to take pay cuts this year and reductions uh and i get it i understand that i there's a human element to that that you're basically telling these other families like hey sorry but let's face it this is the you know, dragon that feeds everything here. This is the engine that drives Oregon athletics. If you're not looking at that and seeing that, Hey, when Oregon football is successful, we make more money then you're really just not paying attention. So yeah, I understand the optics of that outside of it, but you just have to look at this for what it is. It's a business at the end of the day and it takes, you know, you got to spend money to make money and that's a hundred percent what's going on here. And, and you bring up a good point. You don't have to do this in basketball. I think as much as I don't want this to be the case, you can survive a Kelly Graves leaving. You can survive a Dana Altman leaving. Heaven forbid, they're tremendous coaches. Don't mean that in the slightest. But from a revenue and a business standpoint, you can survive those guys going on elsewhere. When it comes to football and this being the, you know, the, the, the money maker, you, you've got to spend that money and you've just got to, you know, in this, in this, in this year, unfortunately, Rob Mullins was forced to nut up and, and give him credit. He did. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I mentioned Miami. I, I talked about dream jobs on the radio show the other day. I didn't think Auburn fit that description. I'm still not 100% sure Oregon fits that description. Does Miami scare you in the future? Not really. Uh, it really does. It's, it's probably very surprising. that. And I, 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 uh, obviously, you're talking about Mario Cristobal, but yeah, I mean, I, um, I've just never gotten the feel that Mario Cristobal has an allegiance to go back and, and coach at Miami. He certainly could. It just doesn't stri- you know, Willie Taggart, you know, bad comparison, different person, but Willie Taggart, right. You know, that it's, FSU it's what job, we remember. It, it's our experience. Well, I mean, that FSU job came calling. I don't think there's anything Oregon could have offered to keep him here. And, and I say that I'm sure they could have offered him $20 million a year and he would have stayed, but obviously we know that wasn't going to happen, but you know, I, I just don't think there's anything Oregon Oregon could have matched an offer from FSU and kept Willie Taggart. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that about Miami and, and Mario Cristobal. I just, I believe that Jessica Cristobal really likes Eugene. I believe that their family is happy here. I believe that they want to raise their kids here because it's safe. It's a great environment. Miami's not a family town. I know there's lots of families down there, but it's a completely different, right. uh, you know, way of life. It's not than, Eugene. 
it's not, it's Eugene. not Eugene. Yeah. It's not Eugene. So, I mean, I think all things being equal, Oregon's got a really good shot of, of withstanding anything Miami throws at him. Uh, the one that scares me, I suppose, Alabama. And, and again, that's not one that's going to call Mario Cristobal first if it opens up tomorrow. I mean, they're going to kick the tires on Dabo. They're going to kick the tires on Urban Meyer. They're going to have their pick of pretty much anybody in the country. Now, if Mario Cristobal wins and does a really good job the next two, three, four years, whatever the case might be, well, we're singing a different tune at that point. But, you know, right now, if I'm projecting, you know, that that type of school is the only one that really, uh, you know, maybe concerns me. But no, Miami doesn't. I, I think, I honestly think Mario Cristobal wants to be in Eugene. And look, here's the deal. You, you have, you have, you have a pressure to win in Eugene. There's no question fans want you to win and they do have expectations. Right. They are not the same expectations you would face at Alabama. Oh no, not even close. Not even close. Not even but, close. But a lot of people don't realize this. A lot of schools, when you go there, you have a network of, of two dozen plus boosters to keep happy. And they're all alpha male rich guys, you know, that are used to getting their way and, you know, making sure that you hear their opinion and that you are, you know, thoughtful of their opinion at Oregon. You do have boosters, but obviously the big two are Pat Kilkenny and Phil Knight. And as far as I know, everything I've been told, those two individuals, not only are they very thoughtful, they're very hands off. They actually don't interact that much and make demands that are ludicrous um, I, I, it's a really good situation for a coach to know that you're really only having to, to appease those two primary boosters, maybe a handful of others. And for the most part, it's pretty hands off. It's really, really nice. I know that's a reason that a guy like Chris Peterson wanted to come to Oregon at that time. I know that's a big reason why Chip Kelly wanted to stay at Oregon was because of that. There's a lot of attraction in that for a head coach, not anything that we'd understand because we don't deal with that, but mm-hmm. It is one of the perks of this job. Yeah. No, I, I'm 100% with you there. I, I think w- when you have that rare hands-off owner or hands-off CEO, because uh, Phil Knight, I, I think even Mario Cristobal has thrown that out before, of, of Phil Knight is kind of the CEO of Oregon Athletics. When you have that guy that lets you roam, it's so much easier to do your job. And he has a he has a ton of faith in Mario Cristobal. I know Phil Knight's a huge Mario Cristobal fan, and was really excited to keep him. But he's also a huge fan of of Rob Mullins, and lets Rob Mullins do his job, and that's very important. I mean, when you have too many cooks in the kitchen, we know how that goes, and for the most part, Oregon doesn't have that, which is why I think this deal was able to get done, and and became a very good deal for both sides. Yeah, um, it's funny. I, I can say this, and, and I'm going to laugh. You might laugh, too. You know it was signing day yesterday? Oh, oh, you mean like the recruiting day? Like, you know, one of the national holidays in a normal year? Right, right. Oh, yeah. Uh, funny oh. how that just kind of flew by us on the calendar. Um, last year, we had Mario, and he spent an hour going over all these guys. I think the year before, we spent an hour going over all the guys. I don't feel like we need to do that this year because you've already done that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, a number of a number of things. Obviously, uh, I think I believe that this has been the wildest week of Oregon uh, athletics of Oregon football that I've ever covered in my life. Uh, I just I don't I don't think we'll ever match the madness of National Signing Day on a Wednesday. 
uh, go from Sunday to Monday and you're playing an entirely different opponent for the Pac-12 championship game on a different day. And oh, by the way, your head coach is being courted by an SEC program, you know, and dealing with I, I just I don't think we'll ever. So it sucks because it did take away from signing day. Uh, but what also took away from signing day, at least as far as Oregon is concerned, is the lack of drama. Yeah. You know, there was there was no big there was no big signing no big surprise signing but you also didn't need it you know you you had your class locked in you had 20 commits you had 21 commits entering the day you still have 21 commits as the day ended 20 of them signed obviously as something i i mentioned on the site even leading up to this week was that you know jonathan flo would eventually commit but would not sign on wednesday and that's exactly what happened no panic there it's, it's pretty well documented why he's got a little bit of academic work to do. And Oregon wanted to be sure that he was going to be, you know, able to qualify because you can't get that signature back. Okay. So if he signs and he's not able to qualify, mm-hmm. you've used that signature. It basically gets wasted. So, and, and they're precious this year. So very smart play. And it was all conveyed openly to both sides. There's no, uh, you know, no dishonesty about it. It's, you know, it was completely transparent. Uh, why that was taking place, but yeah, the crazy part is it's a top six class. It's the the number one ranked class in the in the Pac-12 once again, and here we are. We're I don't know 15 ish minutes into our podcast, and we are just now talking about it. So I suppose that's a good thing. And and uh, overall, uh, I'm just continued to be impressed by what the what the staff is able to do on the recruiting trail. Yeah, two years ago, Kayvon Thibodeau was the headline of that class. A year ago, I would say it was the two linebackers, Flo and Sewell. Who's the headline of this class? Uh, you know, you know, I've said as much. Uh, this year was a was definitely an emphasis on the offensive side of the football. Okay, you, you needed to get you needed to get that uh, quarterback. It didn't need to be based on on quantity. You needed quality. Last year, they they needed a little bit of both, and they got Jay Butterfield. Uh, and Robbie Ashford, they signed last year, two guys. This year, you, you you went all in and landed the top guy out west, Ty Thompson, at least my top guy out west, Ty Thompson, um, just a, like a dude. I mean, a guy that's going to come in polished, ready to play, that's poised, that's a leader, uh, has won two state titles in high school. Uh, it's pretty clear that this guy's really good at football. He was uh, a borderline five-star on 24-7 sports. I believe Rivals had him as a five-star uh, he's right there. I mean, just awesome. And then he is going to be really, really, really happy because he's got two high, high four-star offensive linemen that will block for him. And Bram Walden, also from the state of Arizona, different high school. Uh, he's got Kingley, Kingsley Sumataya, uh, the top-rated offensive lineman out of uh, Utah. Once again, we're fully aware how that worked out for Oregon the last time that happened. <laughs> uh, you know, so he's he's he, it's a really good offensive line class, yeah. and again. Uh, you know, built on quality. But, uh, you know, I'm starstruck at the receivers. I really am. I, I just love the skill players on this. You know, again, at running back, you didn't need quantity. You just wanted quality. And I think Seven McGee is one of the most versatile and explosive running backs in this class. His ranking probably isn't totally justified there because, unfortunately, the young man hasn't played actual football in two years. But I, I think that's a young man that the Ducks were not willing to give up at all. They kept the hammer down, and I know they're extremely excited about him. He's kind of that DeAnthony Thomas-esque sort of player where you could line him up in the slot, move him around, you know, do some end-arounds, all those, you know, fly sweeps, all those things. He's just really that that X factor. you got to get him the football 
and just let him run. And that's what I like about seven McGee. So again, you didn't really need a, a lot out of running back, but you got a really good one. And then at receiver, I might have saved the best for last. You know, Troy Franklin is ready, made to play. Absolute baller, uh, smooth, polished, five-star. Just there's nothing else to say about him. He's not a me guy on social media. You don't see him tweeting probably more than once or twice a month. Uh, and if your receiver is that humble, uh, that's a really, really good trait to have for a wide receiver. So absolutely love that. Ty Thompson and him are going to be best friends forever. And Dante Thornton, again, six foot five, you know, 190, 195, polished, ready made. You know, these are receivers that don't come in and, and aren't projects, not like guys where you say, oh, they're going to need a year or two to develop. No, these are guys that are going to come in, learn the playbook, get a little stronger, get a little faster, and they're ready to go. So, uh, again, at receiver, you didn't need quantity, you just needed quality, and you hit on all those points there. So, I absolutely love this offensive line class. I know the defense, the defensive class was a little bit light, but given what Oregon's done the last two years, it kind of had to be, it was time to balance those things out uh, and give Mario Cristobal credit for having the foresight as a head coach to really understand roster management and continue to compile balanced recruiting classes at Oregon. Yeah, yeah, uh, balanced recruiting classes. I also think there's some balanced geography in there. We know Oregon can go out and get good in-state guys like Keith Brown from Lebanon, go to California and, and pick from the best of the best, get guys that USC wants, that Berkeley wants, UCLA wants, and send them to the Ducks. Um, but I see Ty Thompson out of Arizona. I feel like Oregon owns that state. And then you mentioned going into Utah and getting the best Utah lineman again. I feel like they're building the pipeline there. Yeah, Utah's become very fertile recruiting grounds for Oregon. And you got to give Big Joe a lot of credit for kind of, you know, opening that pipeline at first when he was first hired by Oregon. But obviously, you know, Mario Cristobal and Alex Mirabal have banged down the door and, and are willing to set up shop in Utah. Uh, and again, you know, you, you had luck with Panay Sewell. You had luck with Noah Sewell. Now you've got Kingsley uh, this year, along with Jeff Bassa and Jackson Light. All three came from Utah. So, yeah, you've set up shop there. Uh, you know, I think Oregon is, has made the Carolinas a priority when looking for defensive linemen or outside linebackers. And again, you got Jabril McNeil out of North Carolina this year. I know that's a guy that, that really shows up as a three-star on the services, but a guy that the Ducks absolutely wanted in this class in the worst way. So that should tell you something. So, yeah, even in a pandemic year when official visits weren't able to take place, unofficial visits were few and far between, if at all. And it's clear that Oregon was able to recruit, you know, to, to flex that national recruiting muscle. And again, you know, you're talking about Mississippi, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, Texas, you're talking about North Carolina, uh, you're talking about Maryland. I mean, just you pick it, the Ducks will go there. And uh, it's pretty clear that they can do that with success. Nobody, it's funny because I we had uh, obviously this last week, but the coaching search, you know, we had a, uh, a couple of Auburn fans come over because they were tuned in to what was going on with Cristobal. Right. And even one of them, an Auburn fan to, to the core, you know, says, man, nobody down here knows who the hell Washington is, you know, or Cal. Everybody knows who Oregon is. So that should tell you something about Oregon's brand. And, you know, it's just something to be reminded of that, you know, Oregon can, ref you know, really flex that national recruiting muscle and, and 
outside of USC, not really anybody else can do that in the Pac-12. Stanford can on occasion, but obviously it's a, it's a highly selective few they can do that with. Now, you've been covering recruiting for a lot of outlets for a long time. In your history, watching Oregon recruiting, top 10 last year, top 10 the year before, top 10 this year, how does that compare to other eras of duck football? Well, it, I mean, it obviously it doesn't. Um, and as much as I love and respect what Mike Bellotti did, he didn't recruit like this. He had some great guys that he'd sign along the way. He'd get a Jay Stu or a, a Haloti Nada, you know, and get a big wind here, here and there, but not, I mean, you, you wouldn't look at the top 10, top 15 of his, any of his recruiting classes and trade them for anything Mario Cristobal is doing, not even close. And, uh, you know, as much as I like Chip Kelly, uh, innovative offense, super sharp guy, no question that guy can dial it up with the best of them. Even in his heyday, as successful as he was, you know, he wasn't able to recruit consistently at this level. So I personally didn't think it was anything that we would see on a consistent basis like this. I've always said, and I continue to say that as long as a coach can come into Oregon with really good coaches and develop and be somewhere between 10 and 15 in recruit recruiting rankings, they're going to be okay. Obviously anything better than that is just gravy and, and makes your odds go up significantly at being successful and vying for a national championship. Uh, I just, you know, to see classes hovering around top five, which is truly elite in college football to do that at Oregon it takes a total commitment from your head coach. It takes a very knowledgeable recruiting staff in terms of your recruiting department. You know, Thomas Aarons, Cooper Patanga, uh, Don Johnson, all those guys doing a, an incredibly good job. And then it takes a lot of hustle from your assistants and your coordinators and, and those guys. I know we laud Mario Cristobal for his recruiting efforts as a head coach, which is much deserved. But his recruit, his staff, his, his coaching staff, they work their asses off. And I, and I just don't know that they get enough appreciation because – it takes the right kind of staff to go out and work under Mario Cristobal and do what they're doing because his demands are very high and these guys are clearly answering, uh, you know, in spades. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the staff. I, I did have one question about the staff. We know that the head coach isn't going to go anywhere, but I was just looking the other day. Betting markets really like the possibility of Joe Salavea going to Arizona. What do you think about that? I don't. Uh, I like Joe a lot. Uh, I think he's a great guy. I think he's a good coach. He's, he clearly can develop defensive linemen. I think that's been one of the, the the bright spots for Oregon the last few years that he's been here it has been the development of existing defensive linemen and guys that have showed up already. So clearly he's good at that job. I believe, and I've said as much elsewhere, I, I think Joe's starting to enter a portion of his career where he's kind of at a crossroads. You know, you're, you're getting to a, a point in age and a point with family, you know, and a point with your life where you're going to make a decision. You got the fork in the road. You know, am I wanting to be the guy? Do I want to go lead a program? And realistically, for a guy like him, you're going to go to a program that's probably not very good. You know, you're going to have a rebuilding project. Nobody's going to walk you right into USC your first gig out of the gate. So you're taking that on first and foremost. Do you want the headaches of a, of a head coach? Do you want to be able to handle a budget and a, and a recruiting salary and a recruiting staff and strength and conditioning staff and, uh, you know, your coordinators and, and, and kids that get in trouble off the field? And, I mean, obviously the list goes on and on, but that's what a head coach does. I believe in my heart of hearts that 
Joe is probably at that fork and probably looking at the left side of the fork saying, hey, you know what? I make 750 as a defensive line coach. I'm getting ridiculous talent year in and year out, almost my pick of the litter. Right. I've got a I've got a head coach that I have a really good relationship with, and I know he's going to be here for a few more years. I don't think Joe would go, but that, that's just me personally. I can honestly say, given the week that we've had and all the news that's gone on around Oregon football, I have not checked all that much into it. But just based on what I know from history, from the staff, from Joe, from his relationship with the with the guys there, I think he's at that fork, and I think he's looking at the left saying, you know what, I think I'm good here. I just want to continue doing what I'm doing. I'm good at it. I'm comfortable with it, and uh, I can live you know, parts of my life by doing this. You don't get to really live much of a life when you're a head coach. <laughs> Would you be surprised if Joe Moorhead got a chance to be a head coach this offseason? Uh, this off season, yes. As far as a head coach, I believe that others. I, I believe schools have have gauged interest in him as an offensive coordinator. I don't think there's any reason for him to move laterally. Uh, you know, given the offensive firepower that he has returning and coming in in this class, I think Joe Moorhead is 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 going to end up a head coach within the next two years somewhere. I could see if Arizona was open next year that Joe Moorhead would possibly be a serious candidate there. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he wanted to get back into the South at some point. So some of those jobs scare me. And I think Oregon fans are fully aware that they know that Joe Moorhead's just a really, you basically been able to rent a Lamborghini for, you know, <laughs> for, for a week long vacation. Right. And you know, at some point you have to return it. So I guess just enjoy the ride and, and, uh, Again, I think Joe Moorhead's not a head coach this this off season, but next off season, it would not doubt me in the slightest. That, that reminds me, uh, the, the the main sponsor for my radio show is a BMW dealer, and every now and then, somebody with a Lambo or with a Ferrari, you know, some real nice luxury car, will take it into his service shop because they trust. Hey, these guys work on Beamers all day; they can work on my car, and uh, it's always heartbreaking because. He'll take a picture of it, put it on Facebook, but he can't take it for a spin and he can't keep it, you know? Kind of the same deal. Kind of the same deal. Yeah, we all want to drive a Lamborghini. Mauro Cristobal has been fortunate to rent one for a couple years, but uh, even he knows he's going to have to return that sucker. (laughs) Uh, Same question, potential they leave for a gig elsewhere, Andy Avalos. A little tougher for me there. I mean, let's be real. The defense hasn't been great this year, and I'm not paying that all on Andy Avalos, but when you're a defensive coordinator and people are looking for you to take that next step, it's a little bit less common to happen after you've had, a, you know, what we'll essentially call a down year. And given it's a weird year and opt-outs and all those things, I get it. You know, somebody's going to look at it. Uh, Andy Avalos, very well-spoken, very sharp guy. There's no question he's learned a lot from Coach Cristobal, and they have a really good respect, mutual respect. Uh, again, I think he's a year away. I think if Oregon can have a bounce-back year next year, we're going to hear his name linked a lot more. Uh, frankly, to be honest, I think he's a better candidate for Arizona than Joe uh, Salavea is at this moment. I understand that Joe is an alum, but I do think uh, Andy Avalos is probably a little bit closer to, to running that. I don't really believe all the Brian Harshen chatter to Arizona. I, I think right. that's just his. Right. I think that's just his way of, of renegotiating his contract at his current school, more than anything else. But uh, so yeah, Avalos again. I think he's a year away. Uh, you know, given this year, it's 
it's hard to call. He's more of like the luxury sedan right now than that Lamborghini. Uh, but I think you're going to get the free upgrade next year. Mario Cristobal knows that he's just renting that one as well. Uh, but yeah, I think Avalos is probably another year away as well. And I don't think Arizona is the job for him. Yeah, I'm with you on Harson. Uh, I was just reading the other day that he's trying to push Boise State to switch conferences. I, I can't imagine that if they're that invested in their head coach, they let him make decisions that are that seismic. I can't <laughs> imagine they would let him go. No, I, I mean, I, I think they'll do you – know, the hard part is is he's kind of a jerk. He's really hard to work for, and it's pretty well documented that that's the case. I'm not just making a, a, a wild assumption here. So, you know, at some point do you wonder if that relationship gets a little stressed and he needs to move, get out of there and, and get a fresh start, uh, kind of like Jimbo Fisher did with FSU. Same thing, just really tense and, and, and took the big money at A&M. But uh, I, I think, I, I think Harson's still there. I don't think Arizona's a job for him. I, I, I think that he believes he's a, a really good coach and that a, a bigger job is going to open up and want to hire him, and I think he's going to stay put until that one opens up. Uh, and, Arizona's, and Arizona's not it, that's yeah. for sure. No, no, Arizona's in the basement for sure. Just over 30 minutes in, and I haven't asked you a question about that Oregon-USC game tomorrow. Uh, there's a football game tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's a football game tomorrow, and I I uh, I I, I want to talk about it. And I'm excited to talk about it, and I'm pretty sure we got a couple guys that are smarter than me that are here to talk about it with us. Uh, do we though? Because so so I'll take everybody behind the curtain. We got a Zoom chat. I don't see anybody else in this. Do we have any guests uh, today? Oh, okay. Well, Hitler Day said he'd be here, and QB11 said he'd be here. So, uh, you know what? It might be on me to get them the uh, the Zoom login. So okay. maybe we better take a quick pause so I can get that to them. Sure. I'll have a cup of water. We'll come back, and we'll get the great Hitler Day from Addicted to Quack and QB11 from our Scoop Duck boards. Scoop Duck and High Five. We're going to break down the Ducks and the Trojans in the Pac-12 title game. <laughs> Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi, Matt Bagley alongside Justin Hopkins and two great guests right now, QB11 from the Scoop Duck Boards and Hitler Day from Addicted to Quack. Uh, guys, earlier Justin called this just about the craziest week imaginable where the Ducks had a game scheduled and then they got a brand new opponent out of the blue and then, oh, by the way, your coach is courted by Auburn and then, oh, by the way, National Signing Day was yesterday. Um, now in the rearview mirror, that coach gets an extension. He's not going anywhere. That game against USC feels locked in, knock on wood, on a Thursday. Uh, what are some of the biggest takeaways that stand out to you? Uh, I guess I'll start. I think this was a huge week for Oregon, not just for necessarily this season. And obviously there was a lot of really positive short-term things that took place, but um, just setting up the program, going into the future, uh, more less so on the title game front. I don't think anyone's going to really take this year's Pac-12 champion all that seriously, especially if it's Oregon because of the last two losses, the Cal and Oregon State. Uh, but just getting Mario locked in on a on a long-term contract that 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 gives him the resources. I would assume that he needs uh, the details. You have yet to be released about assistant pool and recruiting budgets and staff. But uh, it just seems like there's a lot of a lot of positive momentum for the future with a top six class and, and, and locking in a big time head coach for the foreseeable future and Oregon really showing investment that they've never showed before. 
Yeah, I got to agree. Like if there's four pieces of news that happened this week, like number one is the program deciding to step up and 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 become, you know, uh, uh, or finish becoming, you know, however you want to look at it. Uh, you know, one of the big boys, you know, one of the actual, you know, there's only about 12, 15 of them that can seriously compete for national titles. And, and if they blew it, uh, th- you know, on this, that, I don't, I don't know, that, that might've been it that, you know, we Oregon football might've been done, you know, as a contender uh, that's number one, uh, number two is the recruiting class. You know, it, it seems like most PAC 12 schools went pretty smoothly uh, in on, on early signing day, but I mean, it could have gotten blown up. Uh, certainly that didn't happen. And, and this is a pretty intriguing class. Maybe we'll talk about it in a second. Um, uh, like number three is that they get to play a football game. You know, those are not guaranteed in this season. And, and uh, for whatever value that football has in this crazy year, like USC should be a pretty good opponent. There are a lot of uh, ways in which it's an, it's an intriguing matchup and that should continue to provide us, you know, pretty good data. I've sort of viewed from the get-go this season is really just for the purposes of data gathering, you know, like practice and, and getting good film on, on live opponents. And like distant fourth, like way, way distant is, oh, I guess they might, you know, win a Pac-12 title technically with a giant asterisk next to it. Like, right, right. who cares? You know, like it seems like, you know, very, journalists in the Pac-12 diaspora, you know, care about that a lot more than any Oregon fan I've ever encountered. Very true. Very true. Uh, QB, I'll start with you because I, I I genuinely am not sure, but I do know that you pay. I don't know if, Q, if Hith pays a ton of attention to recruiting, but I know you do. Uh, real quick, your thoughts on this class. Is there are a couple guys you're really excited about and just how are you feeling overall uh, about who signed with Oregon yesterday? I think yeah, this is this is the best class Mario signed at Oregon. I don't there there were nineteen was really good. Last year was really good, and I think last year uh, we don't really know how good last year was yet, but I think it's going to prove to be really good here as some of those guys get a redshirt year under their belt and we get into the development. But across the board, in terms of addressing needs, they they not only address needs but they did it with top talent. I was having a conversation with a friend last night, and I had both the Alabama commitment sheet and the Oregon sheet up, and Alabama had four receivers and. It was like they were all in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in terms of player ranking at their position. And then you pull up Oregon, and it's like you got Franklin, third best receiver. You got Thornton, sixth best receiver. And then you got Brevard, who all oh, lowly .92 or whatever he is, is a, the 23rd best receiver. It's just that the, the overall quality across the board was great. They got their quarterback, which was a big thing. He's one of the higher-rated kids in the class. They bolstered the offensive line, which was a big deal. They got four guys that have really nice high upsides um, and – Bram Walden, in my opinion, is the best player in the class. So I'm really excited to see him. And they have some some flexibility and some room still going into the second signing period to either add depth to the secondary with transfers, uh, additional prep prep players. And then they've got some big fish along the front seven that they can go after as well. You know, I don't have much to add on the class itself. It's not really my bailiwick, but I'll tell you this. I maintain a database of every Pac-12 football player. Um, uh, there's more than a thousand scholarship players, and, and we're going to go over that limit since this season didn't count for eligibility purposes. Um, and so I've, you know, been entering all these signees into my database. And one of the projects that I, I try to maintain is like, how well are other Pac-12 teams managing their roster in terms of, you know, 
layering out their talent, uh, making sure that there's no you know big lumps in one area and giant holes in another area, and uh, and making sure that they're they don't get blindsided by uh, you know a, a huge amount of dudes that are necessary to their production all graduating at the same time and they have got a void in that way. Like it's you know I spent this whole long off season in 2020 you know writing about how I thought they were good roster managers and very very bad roster managers in the Pac-12 and so I've been looking at Oregon and the rest of the Pac-12's recruiting class through the prism of like how well did you fill needs like I, I don't know if these guys are actually good or not I don't know if these guys deserve their star rankings or not just not my wheelhouse but in terms of you know where Oregon is plugging needs versus where other Pac-12 programs are, are doing their job of plugging needs, man, there's, it's not even close what the difference is between Oregon and the rest of the league in terms of roster management. I mean, there's a couple other coaches in the league who I think are doing a good job in terms of roster management, like Jonathan Smith, for example, who I've been trying to tell everybody for like three years, the best coach in the Pac-12, uh, the the you know, but he's not doing it on signing day right he's going to be doing <laughs> right. it by taking advantage of the transfer portal like the the gap between Oregon I mean not just the talent level the gap between Oregon and the rest of the league in terms of making sure that you have a smooth as crater lake uh, uh, roster with no lumps in, in it like not even close not even close I love that analogy um, I, yeah. I want to revisit a line that you uh, cited in your first blurb here about the asterisk attached to Friday's game, because mm-hmm. I agree with you. There's a huge asterisk attached to this game. Uh, Justin has talked about the, the, the futility of this season a lot on this podcast. I know you've written about that. I've talked about it on my radio show, but let's pretend it isn't futile. And if this game really did matter, big picture, what would your outlook on this game look like? Uh, well, it's a football game. It matters. You know, they're, they're going to be keeping score. They're going to pay the refs. You know, <laughs> they, they all matter. Um, uh, hopefully no one gets, you know, injured or COVID or anything else. Uh, in terms of, you know, outlooks for the game, yeah, I've, I finished charting all five of USC's games this year. It was a close run thing. Getting it crammed in a short week wasn't a lot of fun. But uh, um, USC... USC is not a particularly efficient team Uh, in any quadrant of football. They are about 51%. And actually the thing that that should be their bread and butter, which is their passing offense is the least efficient part of them, which is bizarre. Like, uh, you know, it it is, it is an efficiency offense that is not particularly efficient. And and if you watch the way that they play football for the first four 58 minutes of the football game, it's, it can be hard to watch, you know, because they're, it, it, it's it's philosophically it's built around marching down the field you know i think we all know that about air raid offenses by now it's like ground and pound stanford style style offenses except not on the ground through the air uh and I, i'm not kidding about this 50 percent of usc's attempted passes are uh do not travel far, farther than five yards beyond the line of scrimmage they are trying to march down the field and they're not particularly good at it until their back is against the wall. And then they, it's like when you're playing a video game and the final boss, it's like the second stage of the boss and he, <laughs> he mutates into beast mode. They run a different offense, you know, including like different personnel groups. Crazy. Uh, you know, when their back is up against the wall and then they are unstoppable. Uh, and, you know, I really, I, 
I, I am loath to make predictions about that because I don't know how anybody deals with beast mode version of USC football. Um, it's me. It should be interesting to watch. Yeah, I agree with Hippoday. It's like if they come out and they try to do their 50-50 balanced offense out of 11 personnel and they have Drake London playing on the outside or they have Amon Ra, St. Brown playing on the outside instead of in the slot um, and they just, again, they, they try to force a run game that they don't have, then this game uh, is a game that Oregon can win. I mean, it could even look like last year or USC can come out and play the offense that they play in the fourth quarter of games when they're down and they actually play the proper personnel grouping and throw the ball downfield and USC could, could win in a blowout. So it's just a matter of uh, which USC shows up and honestly, which Oregon defense shows up because uh, you, you would have to be looking at that matchup with St. Brown and London in the slot and just looking your chops. If you're USC with what Oregon's had to deal with at safety this year. So heading into this one, you know, uh, obviously Vegas would even agree that this is a pretty closely contested game. I think it opened as a one-point game in favor of UFC, which is basically a pick almost at that point. Uh, I guess we'll start with you, Hith, from, from this point. What are a couple of the offense or defense, either way, what are a couple of the key matchups that you're kind of looking forward to in this game and, and will, make, will have an impact on the outcome of this game? Well, uh if they rearrange their uh, or if they fail to rearrange their personnel groups so that they are, uh, you know, putting their best receivers um, uh, uh, on the outs or if they're putting St. Brown and Vaughn's against Lenore and uh, Wright, I think I like Oregon in that matchup. And then it's just a question of, you know, whether or not you can hold out for two seconds against London in the middle. Um you know, I, th- this might be a game in which the Oregon pass rush, you know, really starts to make its mark because, uh, you know, hitting those deep shots requires more time than USC's offensive line has given them against not great defensive lines. Like I, uh, you know, Oregon's defensive line has sort of taken its lumps uh, from from the media and others, you know, this season. But like it's the best defensive line that that uh, USC is going to face. So that's, you know, I'm interested to watch that matchup. And then the other side of the ball, it's really interesting that uh, USC has not really faced an RPO offense this year, or really very competent offenses, frankly. Um, it is a hyper-aggressive defense. Like, I mean, it's crazy. They're blitzing on like 40% of their plays uh, or against passing plays anyway and uh you know they're 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 frequently just bringing you know a ton of pressure against the run game and they're guessing you know at the snap they're guessing <laughs> where to go and if they you know guess right it's you know it's a boom uh you know that they, they get taxes for loss at a pretty high rate uh they also surrender explosive plays like nobody's business um the uh, if they guess wrong you know that play's gone for 20 yards so um and the rpo is designed to make you guess wrong uh uh, so that that's, you know, the really intriguing matchup that I'm, you know, looking for, because there is a possibility given the way that USC is structured its defense that Oregon just destroys them. Um, we shall have to see. Yeah, I, I agree with Um the, the interesting thing about that too is Oregon, it, because of the RPO, Oregon should never be in a horrible play, regardless of what USC is doing defensively, uh, both the RPO and the zone read. Basically, any of the numbers dictated plays where Oregon is making post-snap, post-snap reads based on numbers, Oregon should always be in a somewhat advantageous position. So uh, will, will Orlando and that staff be as aggressive against a team that's going to have answers built into the play, 
Or are they going to count on the fact that at least in, in the last game, uh, Shuck was not as efficient in those reads and he's going to make some mistakes and they can still get those those explosive negative plays. Defensively, Oregon last year did a really good job of dictating what USC can do offensively. And I think that's what you do again this year. I think you take more of a Washington approach defensively. You keep everything in front and you let USC try to execute and dink and dunk down the field um, in, the, in that kind of base offense they've been running. And then, uh, and you should be able to have some success. I just get, I get worried of Oregon trying to do too much themselves, selling out, and then getting beat over the top. Because again, I do not like those matchups in the slot for Oregon. Um, Jamal Hill has not played against players like this before, and uh, the, the safety position has been suspect. And our the linebacker coverage underneath has not been great too in zone. So uh, the Oregon pass rush really in defensive front really needs to come through and dominate this game. They should dominate this game. USC's interior offensive line is not very good. Um, so the, there's it's going to be an interesting matchup. It's really just going to come down to who shows up um, at which unit shows up for which team because uh, if, if Oregon's defensive line shows up and plays – closer to their ceiling, which we haven't seen yet this year, so it's kind of a projection, uh, they could have a profound impact on the way that USC is able to run their offense. QB, do you remember a, couple, a little while ago you were on Scheme Podcast with uh, Burke 18 and the Washington State coach who was also a high school air raid coach? Yep. And he was talking about like the ideal quarterback in an air raid system is like a robot. He's like a little wind up soldier who does who who doesn't think at all, who who executes zero human agency and just does exactly what the program you know instructs him to do. And it's crazy watching Keaton Slovis because it's like, oh yeah, that's it. There, here's the, your perfect tin soldier. The kid is a robot. Like he he will do exactly what the play call dictates, which is more often than not, just throw that little flat route, you know, just throw that little dump off or, or check down or whatever, these little crossers on mesh pattern, you know, like the, the that. And so I totally agree with you that that is Oregon's best defensive strategy and one which I think Avalos employed, you know, more effectively than anybody else who's played USC over the last two years uh, is just, you know, let them have the underneath stuff, you know, keep the play in front of them and don't ever let them get into a position where they have to throw the deep ball. Always make them think like, go ahead, take, take the two yards. Go ahead, Keaton. Like, yeah, I agree with you that that's the winning strategy. Even a robotic quarterback or in a robotic offensive coordinator at some point is going to get, they're going to get impatient and they're going to try to push something or force something that's not there. But not only that, if you play it that way and you make USC execute all the way down the field, which they haven't really shown to be able to do as Hithleday pointed out earlier with their efficiency ratings is if you're, you're an Oregon offense, that's extremely explosive against the defense that gives up a ton of explosive plays. You can get out in front of them and force them to be aggressive into a stacked coverage, which gives you a lot better odds than trying to play aggressive early in the game and, and getting burned over the top. Uh, interesting. So it sounds like the game plan for Oregon is is to do your best to get out in front early, uh, at least offensively, which they give you a, a defense that's a recipe for that. I guess my biggest problem with that and my question uh, from that is, is, uh, you know, Tyler Shuck, uh, you know, mixed, I guess we'll just call it a mixed bag on the season, although he's been pretty efficient, and pretty good for a first year guy. Uh, but on the road, seemingly kind of struggled. Is that something that you've charted a little bit with that Hitler day. And, and if he has struggled, what, you know, what are some of the, the, the concerns there with that? 
Well, I don't really pick up a home road split. I, in fact, I, I wouldn't even really call it a mixed bag. He had four good games and one bad game. Uh, you know, uh, at this point in in most Oregon quarterbacks' career, they have a bad game. Uh, I, you know, I have no way of predicting what he's going to do in his next game. There's just not enough data, you know, on the kid yet. Uh, I, I will be optimistic as a Ducks fan that he, you know, bounces back and has another good game now that he's got it out of his system. He has a week off to, you know, relax. Uh, and and study up and get his head right and and put whatever those demons aside. You know, it is an RPO offense in which you know the offense goes through that kid's head, right? Like virtually every play, he is making not just one decision but multiple decisions, and so he's you know got to get pretty close to 100. percent You know, and, and if he does, this is an unstoppable offense. I mean, I, it's look at the numbers like that this offense is putting up. It's insane. They are one of the top offenses in the country. He's one of the top quarterbacks in the country by any way that you want to measure it. He just has to not have a bad game. Let's all cross our fingers. Yeah, I, I agree with him for I don't, I, I don't think I would call it a mixed bag either. He's a first year starter playing his first major college reps in a weird off season with a brand new offense. And frankly, he's been really efficient specifically against blitz and against pressure. I mean, there's been all kinds of, of, of clips this year that Hifflade has put on his, put on his stuff and that I've pointed out in the Twitch in the Twitch streams of Chuck standing in against pressure, taking a hit and delivering balls downfield. Um, Cal was the first game that I've noticed where he's, his mechanics have started to fail. And he's starting to anticipate the hit, anticipate the pressure. And he, we actually saw missed throws in the second half because he was throwing off his back foot. He wasn't stepping in. He was, his footwork was off because of the anticipation of contact. And uh, if he can get back with this, this week off and some good practice time, get back to being confident in the pocket, absorbing the contact and delivering the ball downfield. I don't see any reason why Oregon can't take advantage of an overly aggressive defensive scheme. I'm hearing a lot of optimism about Tyler Shuck from you guys. Um, Based on that, if if you could rate it one out of 10, how optimistic are you about his performance tomorrow? Like a seven. I, I think yeah, that, I mean, that. his floor in this offense is pretty high. Like this offense, because of how much stuff is just schemed for you and just built into it. I mean, a lot of it's by like uh, Hifflade is talking about how he's making reads on every play. It's not like he's running the Shaw offense where he's, where he's literally calling the play at the line of scrimmage. It's all mostly binary stuff. If this guy. And so as long as he's focused and they had a good week of prep and uh, he's kind of learned from some of the mistakes he made against Cal, there's no reason that he shouldn't be at least efficient. Um, and if he has a good game, which I don't know that he's had a great game yet, but if he is somehow rattles off a great game, or the, I mean, like like Hiffladay said, it's it's literally impossible to stop this offense just based on the numbers on the field. There's 11 guys. I I'll put it this way: he's played five games. Uh, 80% of them uh, were good games, so I'd say 80% odds he has another good game. I, I can only go by the data. I you know I've never been a quarterback. I've never been in this situation. I don't know what are the things that gets your head right uh, versus not. Uh, uh, in, impossible to make that prediction, but. He's had four good games in in the craziest offseason in that anybody can remember. Uh, you know, uh, the data indicates. You know, it's not a lot of data, but the data indicates he's a pretty sharp kid. Uh, I think you should have faith in him. So I've got uh, I've got two last questions here, and they can both be fairly quick. Uh, first one would be, uh, you know, basically, let's get a. Uh, we don't normally do this because we record on a Monday, and I kind of store it, but. Uh, I would ask both of you that if you'd like to make a prediction on the game to do so. I predicted 48 to 45 Oregon wins. I'm going with a, 
uh, a field goal to win the football game. I think we're going to see a track meet tomorrow. Uh, do either of you have a prediction on your outcome of this game? QB, why don't you start if you do? Uh, yeah, I, I post on the board 38-31. Um, I think USC actually scores late. I think Oregon kind of separates early third quarter, and then USC goes into frantic desperation mode, makes some plays over the top with their, with the correct personnel grouping in and makes it a lot more stressful down the stretch. But uh, if Oregon can get out to a fast start, I think Oregon wins this game. I, I generally see it in the same way simply because that's been the pattern with USC, you know, that they, that, you know, they, they get ball behind and then they catch up. Um, and, and so something like a close final score after a big separation sounds about right to me. The thing that's, the thing that's difficult to predict in this game, and I'm going to dance around a dirty word in the analyst <laughs> community, which is luck, uh, is that USC in clutch situation, like their third down conversion rate in the fourth quarter is one of the highest in the country. Um, it, it is now, maybe that's because they are an excellent offense, you know, that, that casts off, you know, the, 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 the burdens that are on them, that's keeping them from converting their third downs at such a high rate, the rest of the game, or maybe they're just lucky. And maybe they're on a three game, you know, they've had three different games out of the five that they've played where they've had to do this, like, you know, two minute drill at the end of the game to, to win it. Um, maybe that's a streak of luck and streaks of luck eventually end. I'm not saying, you know, I certainly can't guarantee that it's going to end against Oregon, uh, uh, but it's got to end sometime. Well, and it, it, it also helps when you got, you know, high four stars and five stars on your roster and playing, uh, you know, a lot of inferior talent, but uh, a lot of inferior teams, I should say, I guess. It's but. true. You know, there is another team in this conference that has a bunch of four stars too. Yeah, 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 and we're going to see him tomorrow night. Um, <laughs> uh, last thing, which we haven't done yet, but I, it just kind of came to me. I thought it'd be fun, uh, and we'll just we'll rattle through it real quick. Normally, uh, Matt and I do a five games, which is really fun. We won't do five games with you guys, but there are three other Pac-12 games, and I I personally believe all three are interesting. Uh, so let's go through them real quick. Uh, you guys can just give me a pick: Wazoo versus Utah. Uh, who do you like there, Hith? Uh, I like Utah. I, you know, I, I think that, that Wazoo, the last time we saw him was just a shell of the, the self that we saw them, uh, you know, to open the season. I think the layoff has really killed them. And Utah, on the other hand, their trajectory is, is going the right way. Yeah, I got Wazoo too. You, got, you said Wazoo, you mean Utah though, right? Or yeah, sorry. Yes. That's what's <laughs> sorry. <laughs> My, my mistake. Yeah. Utah is just, uh, they, they've done a good job reloading in the trenches for the most part. The offensive lines performed horribly, but uh, they've got enough other things to, to cover up for it. Well, okay. QB, you may recall at the beginning of the year, we both said this about Utah, like look out for Utah late because, you know, they dealt with the roster fairly well and they're just young and, and, and the later in the year, the better they're going to be and it's sort of proven true. Yeah. I've got Utah as well. Yeah. I and a better in quarter push them around. Yeah, pretty good football. Uh, next is Stanford versus UCLA at UCLA. Uh, what do you got, QB? Uh, I got well th- UCLA. I mean, UCLA. really, I just think UCLA is a better football team. I think UCLA is actually kind of sneaky good. Um, it, watch out if they ever decide to recruit some talent; they could be dangerous. <laughs> The interesting thing on that game is that like both of those quarterbacks, I went into the year very skeptical about QB and I have sort of disagreed about what the, you know, Davis Mills, uh, both of them, you know, their most recent game was in my opinion, the best game that they have ever played. QB, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I think we saw 
Davis Mills kind of start to scratch his ceiling. I'm interested to see what he looks like next year with a full season because he seems to have pretty good mastery of that offense and he can make he can make a lot of plays physically. So uh, DTR, I, I still don't know that you can expect consistently good performance from him, but um, Chip is Chip seems to have kind of found the offense to fit what he's got. Yeah, that, that's the game that's going to have me glued to the screen. I, I really feel like whichever quarterback has a better game wins that wins that one. It could be pretty close. And coincid- coincidentally enough, they have both both those teams have declared they will not play a bowl game. So this is their last game, no matter what. So I like UCLA in that one. I like Utah in the first one. Uh, last game, which I I know it's going to be fun, and I know I know Bagley's hopped up over it, but it's a uh, ASU versus OSU for the seven thirty game Saturday on ESPN, Pac twelve after dark. Uh, Hith, who do you like? You know, I don't think Arizona State is as good as Arizona made them look. Um, but I still think if they're, you know, clicking anywhere near that level compared to what, you know, Oregon State can do, like Arizona State just has a way higher ceiling. Uh, I think Oregon State has a hard time. If if Arizona State puts them in a hole, Oregon State has a real hard time getting out of it. And I sort of think that's how the game is going to go down, even though I think Oregon State is top to bottom, like a more solidly built team than ASU is like. Like ASU is one play away from putting that game out of reach for Oregon State. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's Arizona State because take oh, we're losing. He's in, a, he's in a tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> well, he we know his pick. He's at ASU as well. Oddly, I, oddly enough, oddly enough, I think OSU wins. So that that should make you happy, Bagley. <laughs> but you know, it, it makes me laugh. We have <laughs> one of our guests who, who has said on back-to-back shows now that Jonathan Smith is the best coach in the Pac-12. Uh, I I don't I can't disagree with the logic because he's got almost nothing to work with. I just think if the Beavers are serious about winning, they should recruit some officials. Oregon State got against Orioles. And, oh, he's uh, back. Yeah, Jay. He was back. Now he's he uh, out of the chat. Yeah. So we're just riffing he here, but but yeah, uh, no, that's that's going to be an interesting game. Yeah, I I think uh, I think Jonathan Smith's a really good coach, and I think he's really uh, got a finger on the pulse of you know signing a very small recruiting class in this in this class in 2021 and hitting the transfer portal hard. I I think that's a recipe for success for him, and and probably what I'd do if I was there. So. I like most of the decisions he's making and and the trajectory there. I do think they're going to end up beating ASU this week. I like him. I mean, I I, I, I will be interested to watch that game. It's just such a contrast in styles, you know. ASU is such a, you know, they're such a hot and cold team. Like, what I I had to start out my film study of USC while watching that ASU-USC game, and, like, it was extremely frustrating to watch because it was – both of those teams are just, like – they do a lot of nothing real ugly and then they do something amazing, uh, you know, and it's like, how long can you watch that? You know, whereas Oregon state is very steady, like, st- you know, the steady competent team, which would you expect from a very well coached team. Right. So w- what a contrast in styles. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, Hith, I think you're the only one with us still. I think QB got locked in a tunnel, but we do appreciate you coming <laughs> on again. And uh, we'd look forward to having, uh, I don't know, I don't know if Oregon's going to get a bowl game or, or not, so hopefully we can have you back. But either way, we can, we can talk about what we saw this year. But uh, uh, once again, thank you very much for the insight. And, of course, thank you to QB, who's, uh, who's, uh, who, who we did lose. But uh, we'll talk with you again real soon, my friend. 
My pleasure, guys. I've, I've got my uh, Addicted to Quack film study article on USC going up Friday morning, which is the morning of the game, but short week, uh, a lot of prep to, to get done. It should be a good article. I'm going to have a lot of good film study in it. Perfect. Nice. Make, sure you, make sure you link it on the board. We always love reading it. It's terrific stuff, like you said. So Thanks, guys. All right, hey everybody, we're, we're doing a little bit different schedule today because, well, we get to do the podcast. It's our podcast, so we make the rules here. I uh, spent about 30 minutes talking about the Mario contract and about signing day and then about 30 more minutes looking at the Pac-12 title game. Now we get five games we're excited to watch. And I think this week, conference title week, it's going to be less than five games, but it's still going to be good. I'll start off with the morning game on Saturday, Justin. I've got Northwestern, Ohio State, Big Ten title. I expect the Buckeyes to win and move into the college football playoff. I just want to make sure Saturday morning. How about you? Do you have that game? Uh, I have it written down. Not all that. Not all that. That's honestly probably the one that I'll turn on and do some work. Uh, just kind of having it on the TV. But I mean, you know, Vegas has Ohio State as a twenty point, twenty and a half point favorite. So clearly, I don't. They're not expecting much. I'm not either. So yeah, Ohio State should beat up on Northwestern. Uh, I, I mean, same thing. I also wrote down Oklahoma and Iowa State. I'm really not that excited about that game, but it is a championship game. Uh, I've, yeah, Oklahoma's a five-and-a-half-point favorite in that one. I won't be surprised to see Iowa State with the upset there. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm so torn on Iowa State because, on one hand, you lose to a Sun Belt school. I can't have you number six in the country. But on the other hand, the defense is a darling. Uh, every X's and O's geek from coast to coast loves what Iowa State does defensively, and I'm no different. I love watching it. And I love the story of a not Oklahoma, not Texas, potentially winning the Big 12. And and that's up for grabs right now. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, just a weird year. Just, uh, yeah. Uh, obviously, Clemson-Notre Dame, I think that's probably outside of the Pac-12 games. That's probably the one I'm anxious to watch the most. Marquee. Uh, yeah. One o'clock on ABC. That's probably the most exciting game to me outside the Pac-12 this, this weekend. Uh, however, much like myself, Vegas thinks uh, Clemson's a heavy favorite, ten and a half point favorite there. I think a Trevor Lawrence-led Clemson team is going to smoke Notre Dame, who I've still not fully bought into just yet, but they keep winning. So uh, that that one's a fun one for me. So I, I'm guessing you got that one too. No doubt. No, and I will I will state the obvious here. Clemson had DJU at quarterback. Lawrence is compared often to the second coming of Joe Montana. He has that kind of poise, that kind of composure at the quarterback position. I think he's that much of a difference maker. Clemson's going to win this game. But if Notre Dame wins, this is the most obvious thing anybody will ever tell you, if Notre Dame wins, they can beat anybody in the country. Because I, I just, I never expected them to beat Clemson once. If you do it twice, you can really run the table. You can, but that, I mean, that said, my la my final game is Bama, Florida. Clearly, uh, Vegas thinks Florida has no chance. Bama's a 17-point favorite. That's massive, uh -huh. uh, and I'm, I'm going to agree. I, I don't think anybody's beaten Bama this year. I think it's abundantly clear. If Notre Dame ends up playing Alabama, uh, I just don't think they can hang. I actually think Ohio State 
would fare better simply because of the amount of talent that they have on their roster and that they'd be able to complete. But uh, I wrote down Bama versus Florida, but I'll be honest, I'm not even sure if I'll tune in. I don't even know if you'll need to tune in after the second quarter of that No, one. no, no. And, and I will say this. Again, if Notre Dame beats Clemson, I yeah. like them against Bama. I want to see that title game. I don't think it's a rematch of the game we had uh, half a decade ago. If Notre Dame loses, well, Notre Dame is who we thought they were. Um, yeah. Bama, Florida, yeah. Honestly, and I, I said this on my show the other night, I'm ticked at the playoff committee. The only they reason suck. the only reason Iowa State is number six is so that people watch that Big 12 title. And the only reason Florida's number seven is the same reason. They yeah. want people to tune in. And, and, and these are not playoff teams. They're just not. No. We're, it's, it's, uh, it's probably a, a, a back-assward way of thinking, but... Uh, probably should be thanking our stars that the Ducks didn't end the season 5-0, and 6-0, and whatever, uh, simply because they probably wouldn't have been there and everybody oh, would yeah. have been in an outrage. Right. You know, everybody would have. So we don't even have to worry about it because they did finish 3-2, and two, unfortunately, but fortunately it probably saved us a lot of heartache because I'm pretty sure a 6-0 and Oregon was not getting in or near that regardless of what they did in the conference championship game. Well, all you have to do is look at USC – and the Trojans didn't play anybody really tough, but they ran right. the table. They're unbeaten. Right. And right. I don't even think they crossed the top 10 in the rankings. Yeah. No, it's 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 shameful. And it's funny because, you know, last year was Rob Mullins, you know, last year uh, as the committee chair. And this is the first year. And I know it's a pandemic year. It's weird. But they did a really terrible job this year. Uh, and I, I just think a lot of folks are disappointed in uh, – you know, this year's committee, uh, you know, college football playoff rankings. And I agree. Yeah. All right, man. Um, that's our five games and, and it's pretty light five games. We, we literally ran through everything unless I missed something. I don't think I did. Nope. Did I? No, that's my five. Uh, I jotted down Tulsa versus Cincy. I'm not even sure I'll watch it, but yeah. it's, it's on there, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're through five games. We're good. Uh, I'd say it's time to put a bow on this sucker with lock of the week. Sure. And, and we're skipping hoops as well, but that's just because we talked about this at the start of the show. Mario Cristobal makes the money because football drives the money. I've always had this expression in sports, and I've told Justin a billion times on this podcast, football first. We're a football yeah. podcast. We know football fans outnumber everybody else. We're football first here. Uh, we'll, we'll do a ton of hoops next week. I want to talk about the Oregon ladies drilling Oregon State. I want to oh, talk yeah. about the Oregon men looking sharp. And uh, and I really want to see what they do against the uh, University of Portland and San Francisco this week. Um, we'll, we'll give them plenty of love next week, I promise. But, yeah, football, let's lock it in. This kid has burned me every single time I've made a lock about him this season, but I was listening to QB11, he sounded optimistic, I was listening to Hithliday, he sounded optimistic, and I feel optimistic. In my heart, this is a week where Tyler Shuck uses that week off, looks back at all the mistakes, he's had five games, he's had some good, he's had some bad. I think in game number six, we're going to see great. I think Tyler Shuck is really, really great on Friday. I like at least three touchdowns, no picks. Uh, you know, I like that pick because uh, here's full disclosure, honest truth. You know, Matt and I paused for a second, talked without recording, and I said, you go first. I'm not sure which one I'm going to do. 
And it was between Tyler Shuck and what I'm about to say. So since you picked Tyler Shuck, who I do believe will have a good game, I do believe that this offense and Joe Moorhead, uh, you know, will be able to uh, exploit that USC defense. Uh, I think he's going to have a huge game. So I wholeheartedly agree. Since you picked it, I won't double down on it. I'll go ahead and go the other direction, which was my other choice as well. And I, I like them both equally. Defense is going to come up big with interceptions. I think they are going to figure out a way to get Keaton Slovis uh, to make mistakes. He's going to force the issue. And something that QB11's mentioned for weeks now, not just this week, but uh, you know, I've heard him mention for weeks, you know, Keaton Slovis is really good, and then he gets impatient. And then ultimately, that's when he makes a mistake. Well, unfortunately for him, you can't make mistakes against Diamador, Lenore, and Mikel Wright. They're two of the best in the conference. They'll make you pay. Uh, I think Oregon's going to pick Keaton Slovis off three times Friday night. Okay, uh, I won't get specific about who will do it. I'm just going to say he's going to force three interceptions on Friday night. Uh, more than likely, you'll get the two corners with one and possibly a safety with the third. I'm predicting three interceptions for this defense Friday night. Wow. Wow. And and, and that is, I, I'm using my infomercial hype voice here, but that seriously, earlier the guys were talking about how the Ducks are going to make them dink and dunk. You're taking that to the next level of they'll make them dink and dunk, and then Slovis will get impatient, and boom, something great's going to happen. Well, and that's the thing. If you start forcing them to be one-dimensional, you know, then obviously Oregon will adjust. And and I think that's what you want. You want to make them one-dimensional. And sure, they've got a lot of talent. They can they can push the ball down the field. They've got some great receivers. I don't dispute that. But Andy Avalos, uh, you know, given the, the lumps he's taken this year, still a tremendous defensive coordinator. And I think when he makes the offense, when the offense has to become predictable is when Andy Avalos is at his best. You know, he's able to yeah. to counter those on the defensive side, and that's why you see Oregon such a multiple defense. So, again, I think the defense comes up big, forces three turnovers, and, you know, should the Ducks find themselves on the positive side of the turnover battle, they might end up having a fairly easy win this weekend. Yeah, the Andy Avalos fan club might run out of room. Um, those are our locks of the week. I like Tyler Shuck to have a big day. Justin likes the Avalos-led defense to force some turnovers, and we both think Oregon's going to win. I I'm with you. I think it's going to be high scoring. I think it's going to be high scoring, but I'll say it right now. I think it's going to be close to what we had last year. It's not going to be a total route. It's not going to be a stomping, but I think it's going to be maybe a 10-14 point game. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. said 48-45. I think USC will come on strong in the second half. You know, at that point, it's going to be Oregon's, Oregon's you know, they're really going to have to, you know, uh, be physical up front and, and command the line of scrimmage and be able to run the ball out. And, you know, we've seen everybody do this to Oregon. You know, uh, take the air out of the football, okay? You know, lower their snap count, keep their offense off the field. That's the recipe for success against Oregon. Well, it's definitely the recipe for success against USC, limit their offense, the amount of snaps they get, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and for Oregon, I think that's going to be uh, paramount in the third and fourth quarter for them. Yeah. I just feel like with, with Mario Cristobal, we saw it two years ago, Washington comes to Eugene, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau's in for a visit, and they play the game of their lives. They beat Washington. 
they get all the love from the country after that one. Uh, bowl game against Michigan State. They had a rough end of that year. They finish on a high note. Uh, go into the next year, back and forth with Auburn. Game goes down to the wire. Thought that was a great performance. Just couldn't get the W. But they win the Pac-12 title at the end of the year, and we know what they did in the Rose Bowl. My point being is, even if the week-to-week performance isn't always steady, in big games, this team plays one way. Good. Yeah, yeah, they play good. No, And then there's a lot on the line. I know folks are saying, well, they're not playing for anything. No, that's BS. They're playing for something. I don't, I don't think you guys are appreciating this rivalry. I know it's not Washington, but it's USC. Uh, if there's a second team that Mario Cristobal likes the least in the conference, it's USC. Uh, you know, that's your, that's your recruiting nemesis, if you will. Uh, there is a ton on the line for this football game. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think anybody's too concerned about the bowl game that might follow for either team. They're concerned with having bragging rights about who won this football game for the entire year. So I think you're going to see a revitalized Oregon team out there. I think there has been times where this team has looked – uh, you know, a little timid, uh, just hasn't seen maybe that juice or that effort on some plays in some quarters, in some games. And I think that uh, I don't think that's going to be a problem Friday night. It would have been a problem against Colorado, I believe, because you could you could convince me that there isn't enough motivation in that game for Oregon and its players. There's definitely enough motivation in this game for Oregon and its players. No doubt. A lot of motivation for them. And a lot of motivation for you, fans. Keep listening. Review us. Tell us what you think about us. And listen to us again next week. We'll try to tape this earlier. Just a, just a weird way the week went with a contract hanging in the balance and a game that we just quite didn't know who the Ducks were going to play. Uh, now we know. We're talking about it, telling you about it, and uh, we hope you like what you heard. This is Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. We'll be back next week. And I just want to tell everybody, thanks for listening. Go Ducks! I can do this night like all day long.